0: by the way, these are on the website. Uh, you can listen to them there. Uh, we'll keep them up there as long as as long as long people are interested in them. We could end up with 26 different messages, you know, so this could go for a long time. But um, this one I think you're familiar with, but it's too important to pass up, not to stop and think about our Bible again. As a matter of fact, uh, a couple years ago now, I did a whole series on Sunday night on these very topics that are on this sheet. As a matter of fact, that's where this sheet comes from, and you might have a copy of it from way back then, but it'll, uh, it'll kind of serve today as an outline that you can look at because we're going to talk about each of these words again, talk about our English Bible a little bit and uh, how we got it, why we have it, why it's important. So uh, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on this. Father, thank you for our time together now this morning, and as we talk about your Bible, which we read and we preach and teach from constantly, uh, enrich our understanding, help us to see things more clearly, and help us to have confidence in your word, that uh, we know it's your word. Uh, We know that it is quick and powerful and sharper than a two edged sword. And so, Father, help us to be able to use it as you would please. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it important that we study the Word of God? Well, for that reason. It is the Word of God, right? Uh, It's not our Word, it's His. As a matter of fact, we believe about the Bible that it's the only such Bible, the only such book, if you will in the world. And though there are lots of religious books, as a matter of fact, there are lots of religions that have their own religious books, but we have to believe that our Bible is the only one that can be called God's Word, the only one that can be called uh, inspired. There's an old article by B.B. Warfield called Revelation and Mysticism, and uh, he, he points out that the, our Bible is the revealed word of God and everything else is mysticism. <laughs> everything else comes from the brain of human beings. Uh, the Koran comes from the brain of a human being. The Book of Mormon came from the brain of a human being. Only this book is the only thing in the world that came from the hand of God and not from the brain of a human being. When you think about it, we have a revelation from God here and everything else outside of that book uh, that has been written and published and so forth is all humanism. It all comes from what man can come up with. Sometimes it's pretty good and there's a lot of good books and a lot of the good things to read and a lot of lousy things to read. So that's why we feel it's important and we, we kind of renew our knowledge about it Uh, as we go along. Uh, On your sheet that you have here that we handed out to you, uh, Joan and and Gordon, did you get one of these? Okay. Um, These words along the, the left side, you remember, is kind of the outline that we use when we talk about God giving his word all the way up to today, when we read it and the Holy Spirit illuminates these things to us. Let me, let me go over this chart with you just again. Uh, it's been a couple years maybe, so you're, you're familiar with what I'm doing with the little X's and the lines on there. In our time frame of the world itself, we can go all the way back to Adam, right? Right? And the only one of these five words or six words I have here that, that, that began with Adam is that God was revealing things to Adam. Adam didn't write anything. Uh, the, the Bible, though it contains uh, a record of what God said to Adam, Moses wrote that, right? So we have revelation back to Adam. Whatever God said to him in the garden when they walked and God talked to him, those are God's words, but they were not written down until Moses. So the second word inspiration has to do with when things began to be written down. That's when inspiration started, of course, because Moses is now writing and the writing that he is doing is being inspired by God. Uh, That begins with Moses, even though Moses was talking about or letting us know what God said to Adam now revelation then will only go to the last book of the Bible because we believe that God has not revealed himself in miraculous means since then and we'll talk a little bit about revelation in a minute because there's general revelation that goes on but we're talking about here the scripture itself Inspiration also begins with the first writer and goes to the last writer, which is John, the book of Revelation. So it starts and stops in that time frame with all 66 occurrences of it in between those two X's. Now, canonization, we'll we'll see, is that process of Putting it together into one book. So, how do we take the sixty-six books, put them together in one, or the thirty-nine of the old into a thing we call the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, and the twenty-seven into the New? That uh, was ongoing as the writers were writing. People were recognizing these are words from God. This, this is thus saith the Lord. This, this is the uh, Scripture given. Inspiration, But I put a dash and another X after that, as we'll see in a minute, because even in 95 AD, when the last one was written, we have evidence that the Christian people in the New Testament times understood that these were biblical books. But there was a lot of controversy about, well, what about other books and other good men who have written? Should they be included in the canon of Scripture? And that controversy went on for a few years after that until it was settled, okay? We'll talk about that. Now, preservation is the fact that you still have God's Word in your hand, and and we have it, and so uh, that we bring that up to today or to any day uh, that believers live on this earth. Now, the translation of it from the original languages into our languages, and there have been many. Uh, also begin uh, when we, we had those books and they needed to be put into another language. So right away they were being copied, translated, and made available to people of other nations. That goes on till today. Now illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit on the believer's heart and mind as he's reading the Word of God to help him understand that. So that would take place from the first time it was written, when the Old Testament Jews, the Israel, had the books of Moses, the Torah. They were reading it, studying it. The Holy Spirit was helping them understand it. So it would go from Moses, and it would continue today because what we're doing this morning and what we will do throughout today and believers all over the world will do today is study God's Word and ask the Holy Spirit to help them understand it. Okay, so that's what that chart is for, that's what those lines and X's are for, but also uh, uh, just serves as an outline for what we're doing today. So let's talk about Revelation first. It makes sense that God would reveal himself to us, right? Uh, If God has not done that, uh, then what would we know? How would we be saved? How would we even know our own need uh, the deist would be right, who said, you know, God created the world and then took his hands off of it and didn't deal with it since then, just kind of let it go. Or maybe the evolutionist would be, would be correct. We wouldn't know, actually. But God, being a loving God and loving us, has made himself known to us. That is, that is an important and unique thing. Uh, whether that was Adam back in the garden, or whether that was Israel and the prophets giving prophecies to them, or whether it's the Bible writers, or especially whether that's God come in the flesh to reveal himself to us. All of these things are revelations from God. Now, the theology books will divide it into two main categories, if you remember. What are those? Anybody remember? Remember? You'll you'll remember as soon as I say it. General and specific. General and and special, sometimes it's called. What is the difference between those two? Well, general revelation are those things that anyone in the world would know. You don't even have to have a Bible to understand some of God's general revelation, right? What is general revelation then? What's, What's an example of it? creation, of course. And uh, we, we can go back to Psalm 19, for the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork, or Romans 1, where the invisible things of him are from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So uh, that's true. From the very beginning then, uh, human beings have been able to look at the world around them and say, there must be a creator. There must be something out there that made this. Uh, only those who uh, are still searching for the other half of their brain are trying to realize that all of this came from nothing. But people have always recognized that. So there is the there is the revelation from nature, from the creation. Then uh, another uh, form is the human being himself or herself. In other words, we're made in the image and likeness of God, right? So we, we are different from the other created things on the world. And we begin to look at human beings in the way they think and the way they're made, the, the way uh, we relate to God. And that's a general revelation. Every human being has this ability because every human being is made in the image of God. And um, this Uh, General revelation then began at the very beginning and goes to today. Now, it's not not infallible from our side. (laughs) That is, as we read it, human beings have interpreted it many different ways, right? As a matter of fact, that's why you have evolution, because some man made in the image and likeness of God looked at all of that, and came to the conclusion that there wasn't a God, that this came by chance and time and so forth, whether that's Darwin or a number of other people. So we can be fallible. We, we can misread it. Uh, or sometimes we can uh, think that God did a certain thing and he did it differently. In other words, there are people who believe in God. Some believe that the flood of Genesis was only local, And others believe it was universal. Of course, we take the universal view because we think the Bible's pretty plain about that. But uh, look at the fossil record and the continents and the mountains and the seas. And we have general revelation that way. And people can come to different conclusions. But general revelation is really not what we're talking about today. We're talking about special revelation. As a matter of fact, one part of special revelation So under the special revelation, you have three or four different categories. One is, let's start in the middle, with the incarnation of God into flesh, because that was the greatest of all special revelations. When God became a man and he came to this earth to talk to us and reveal things to us, everything that Jesus said, was, of course, divine and inerrant and, and correct. And then he did something for us, of course, in that he redeemed us by his own blood. So, so the incarnation of God into flesh is, is, is uh, the pinnacle of special revelation. But let's back up a little bit. When God spoke to Adam in the garden, God was giving special revelation that is, he's talking to Adam. He could have put him in the garden and never talked to him and said, all right, Adam, you figure out what's going on. Adam's looking at the sky, he's looking at the trees, and of course, he hadn't fallen into sin. He might have been pretty smart. <laughs> but rather than just the general, God specifically spoke to him. So everything God said to Adam was like an inspired record, right? but it was not written down. Except later, in 1400 B.C., God says to Moses, now I'm going to tell you some of the things that I told Adam. Not everything, but I'm going to tell you a few. And Moses began writing those down, and then we have them in Scripture too. But there are a lot of other things that were said to Adam that we don't know. We We have no record of. But they were special revelation when it happened. So carry that forward then to all of the prophets who received correct information from God and turned around and preached it, those prophets and later apostles had special revelation from God, but not all of it was written down. There are a lot of prophets in the Old Testament that uh, prophesied, and they didn't write books of the Bible. Or there's a lot of prophets that did write, but not everything that they knew or spoke. Uh, was written down, all right? Uh, so, so we know that's true. And then besides the unwritten special revelation that came to human beings, then of course there's a written revelation that came to human beings, and that's, that's really our subject. So like the chart shows, at beginning at a particular time and going until a particular time, God chose writers to write down a revelation from God, to write down a special revelation from God. And when he did that, and it was inspired, that miracle of inspiration was a unique thing. Uh, As unique, I suppose you could say, as the incarnation. As unique as when God gave a prophet a special word. That's why we today who believe that these things have ceased, that is, the special revelations of God ended in 95 A.D., when we hear somebody stand up and say, well, God gave me this vision. And they're, ta- they're not talking about just a good idea. <laughs> they're talking about s- God gave them specific information or somebody claims to be a prophet. Now we have people in the 20th century who are claiming to be apostles again. In fact, right here in Kansas City, Uh, So they are latter-day apostles, and uh, we say to them, not so, unless the miracle of special revelation is still continuing, and it is not. We believe it ended when the scriptures were done, and at that point there are no more prophets, there are no more apostles, and there's no more scripture being written, okay? All right. So a definite beginning and ending. So Revelation, where would we be without it? Not very far. We need it. Secondly is inspiration. And uh, by the way, um, here I'm letting you keep your Bible closed. Ah, not good. So go with me first to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 before we leave Revelation. And here's a great two verses that you know. Revelation 2, 9. As it is written... I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. How would you know about God? It doesn't enter into your mind, this special revelation. It doesn't come from you. But verse 10 says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. Revelation. Okay? And this Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, and brings those things to us. Now, go on over to, uh, of course, the most well-known verses, 2 Timothy 3 and 16, 15 and 16. This uh, is the classic inspiration verse, and rightfully so. We can also go to 2 Peter 1.21, but in, in 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by what? inspiration of God. So we have a second doctrine, and that is inspiration. In that verse in 2 Peter 1.21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so in the same way. So what happened uh, in this inspiration? Well, I'll give you five words. Number one, there's a source, and the source is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit becomes the author of this book. And so this verse tells us it is God-breathed, meaning uh, the Spirit of God came upon these, as Peter says, moved along by the Holy Spirit. The the second word is the instruments. Besides the source being the Holy Spirit, the instruments become human beings. So the human being, whether it was Moses to begin with, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, and Peter, and so forth, they were uh, used by the Holy Spirit to write. All right? And thirdly, the media becomes the words so the very words that they write down is what is inspired through these men now when we talk then about the words we define our method of inspiration with two words what kind of inspiration do we believe in and you you may be on the tip of your tongue too Plenary is one of the words, and what are words? What are action words, Ver- verbs? Plenary, verbal. Now, here's an interesting thing. I, don't, I won't spend much time on it, but over the years, as we've been studying God's word, good men and good theologians uh, have come up with different, quote, theories of inspiration. That is, all right, how did this take place? And how did God do it? There are also very liberal theories of inspiration, as you can imagine. But one that sometimes seems logical, but when you think about it, it doesn't follow through. But good men had believed it, and that was called mechanical dictation. And this theory was as if the man himself, with a pen in his hand, put his hand down on the paper and he didn't even know exactly what was going on, but all of a sudden he was writing <laughs> the Holy Spirit, and he's looking at it kind of saying, whoa, what am I doing here? You know, Or that as each letter is being formed or each word is being written, the Holy Spirit is telling him exactly what to write. It sounds logical, doesn't it? Because in the end, we are going to say that every word, as a matter of fact, every letter, of those original writings is exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted. So that theory sounded pretty good. matter of fact, in our lifetime, the probably the most well-known person who believed in that was uh, John R. Rice. How many of you ever heard John R. Rice speak? I did a number of times in person. Fine old man, just m- would move you by his preaching and his writings too. But he, he believed in this dictari- dictation theory. But Generally, and by the way, then you you go to the other side, which are the liberals, and they come up with all kinds of theories, like every poet is inspired, and the Bible writers were like poets, and they were inspired, like you know, like Shakespeare was inspired, or, or so forth. There's those kind of theories, or that God just kind of gave them a good idea, and with that good idea, Paul went to the page and started writing down, and. Uh, kind of express that good idea that God gave him, you know, kind of a conceptual theory. So between the right and the left side is really the, the, the uh, plenary verbal, and that would be that God chose Bible writers because of what they had to offer. So these Bible writers, God knew, could write what he wanted them to write at that time. And he used them because they had a certain vocabulary, they had a certain style, they had a background. So when God wanted to write to Jewish people alone the life of Christ, he chooses Matthew, who is a Jewish person who knows the genealogy and knows how to present Christ as Messiah to the Jews. But when he wants to write to the Gentiles more, he picks Mark and then he picks Luke. And then when he wants to write a more universal gospel, he picks John. So he picks the writers according to what they're going to write and according to their vocabulary. And he uses that background and uses that vocabulary so that when they write, it is exactly what he wanted. But the human element is always there. Okay? Now, Luke chapter 1, by the way, is probably the greatest expression of that, uh, the way he did it. As Luke, being more Gentile, if he had any Jewish blood in him at all, notice how Luke begins his gospel then. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. You know what he said there? I wasn't an eyewitness of the life of Christ. I went to eyewitnesses and researched and heard what they had to say. Here's a Bible writer saying, rather than God just giving me every detail and I sat down and wrote it out, I had to do my research. But when I sat down to write it, it was God's word to the very letter. Okay? So it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write. And so he realizes that what he's writing is also from God. All right? So uh, we have, we have uh, plenary means, when we say plenary, we mean All of the Bible. So from all of the Bible writers, from Moses' first writing to John's last words, all of it is equally inspired. You may not like to think so, but the genealogies (laughs) are just as inspired as John 3.16. Every word is what God wanted. Verbal means that it's inspired to the very words. As a matter of fact, the jot and the tittle, as Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law. The jot is a Hebrew, the smallest Hebrew letter, yodh, is like our Y. And the tittle is the, is the little markings that hang on the Hebrew letters to tell one from the other. Like uh, you, if, you, if you wrote an English V and an English Y, you would only know them apart by the little thing hanging at the bottom of the Y, right? The Hebrews would call that a tittle. Uh, and they, their squares were very blocked. And they made those blocks with different little th- corners on them. So Jesus is saying not one yodh or one tittle of the little letters will pass till all things are fulfilled. So when these writers wrote... It, the, the very letters that they were writing are inspired. After all, folks, uh, how do you make, a, how do you make a, uh, a word? You make it with letters, right? You can even misspell it, right? And in those languages, how you spelled depend, made the difference between uh, present, past, and future, made the difference between first person, second person, and third person. I mean, all of that... Is, is how you spell the word, and God wanted all of those verb tenses and all of those kinds of things built into it, so it had to be spelled correctly to the very letter. How do you build sentences? Well, then you take those words, and you make, you make them into a complete thought, right? We call a sentence, and he did that. How do you build then a paragraph with a bunch of those sentences, and how do you build a book with a bunch of those paragraphs? And that's how God did it. So, plenary, verbal inspiration. That's very important for us to, uh, uh, to know because we're claiming only this book had that. Only those original writings of this book had that, all right? The substance, if I have a fourth word under inspiration, the fourth word would be substance, and that is, it's truth. We've had a battle in our lifetime over inerrancy, or infallibility, where some would say, well, okay, it's all inspired, but that doesn't mean it's all truthful. (laughs) That doesn't sound right to our ears, but to their ears it did. That, uh, you know, maybe when the Bible speaks about faith, it's true, but when the Bible tries to speak about science, it may not always be true. Or when the Bible tries to speak about history, maybe that's not always true. And we say, no, whatever God wrote is true. And even if it seems to contradict what the scientist says, go with the word of God because in the end that will prove to be true, as we've seen in the last hundred years over and over again in archaeology, in creation, in various different things. The last word I would use is frequency, and that is that it only happened once. But, but understand what I mean. It happened 66 times, but from Moses to John is a start and a stop, and that is not going to happen again. So inspiration was a miracle, sure, over a period of 1,500 years by 66 different, well, not 66 different authors, but 66 different times, and then it was done. It didn't start before that. It didn't go beyond that. Now, the fact that we believe that, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be knowledge, it shall cease. And tongues will, pass, will stop also and pass away. So that is why we can confidently say, even if you have some Islamic friends and you know some Muslim people, they are going to, of course, hold on to their Koran written in the 6th century or 7th century uh, in the 600s uh, uh, by, by uh, Muhammad. And they're going to look at it as, of course, equal to the Bible, maybe even more important than the Bible. You and I, from the very beginning, just say it's not God's word. It <laughs> may make them angry, but that's just the truth. They would like to believe then that inspiration is more like what Muhammad did. Just, you know, a man feeling religious who thinks that some spirit appeared to him, and he rushes off and writes it down as fast as he can. And that's what all the Bible writers did. And we just don't agree. And we we understand that the Bible was unique and didn't happen again. Or Joseph Smith. In the same way, some spirit supposedly appeared to him, gave him special glasses to read with, he discovered some tablets that no one had ever seen before, and voila, here's the Book of Mormon. And we just say, God didn't do it again, I'm sorry. Now, we like people like Shakespeare, Augustine, you know, various men throughout history who have written wonderful things, but even they didn't claim to be inspired, uh, especially Christian people like that. All right? Inspiration. Any thought or question or inspired word? No. Okay. Canonization then, thirdly, um, we won't spend as much time on. And here we we deal with a lot of historical things, but uh, go to... Go to Luke, you might still be there, to the last chapter this time of Luke, 24, and 40, verse 44. Here's the Lord appearing to the disciples after his resurrection. He said, these are the words which I speak unto you while I was yet with you, that in all things must be fulfilled, which were written in, and he's going to classify the Old Testament books, Moses, prophets, prophets and psalms. Moses, prophets, and psalms. The, the, the Torah, the books of Moses, the poetical books, which he calls the psalms here, and then the prophets, everything else. Actually, the Hebrew Bible, uh, I think I have this number right, it's either 22 or 24 off the top of my head. They had that, we say, we say 39 because we divide them up they did not divide first and second samuel first and second kings first and second chronicles they just called it samuel kings and chronicles they did not divide the 12 minor prophets they called them the 12 so when you when you take away those kinds of things you come down to and i think ezra and nehemiah would one book and so forth things like that so that's okay i mean they have the exact same writings but when they when the canonization is the process of which books should be there and which should not? Now go to go to Second Thessalonians in, in the New Testament and notice something that is said here about by, by Paul when he's writing his second letter to the Thessalonians. Early, by the way, early fifties, these are some of his earlier books, and he says in chapter two verse two of Second Thessalonians be not. Soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us. What does he mean there? There are some writing epistles and saying that they're from us, but they're not from us, they're forgeries. They wrote them and put the name on them. So beware. So, what I'm saying is, before the New Testament was even complete. As a matter of fact, in the early stages of of inspired writings, there were already people recognizing that there are inspired books and trying to pretend to be one. And Paul knew it and warned the church about it. So what that tells us is that the churches were also acutely aware of who the Bible writers were, who the apostles were, who was writing Scripture, and who was not. So this process of canonization is what I'm saying, begins early. And and uh as books were being written, they knew. Uh let me tell you, the Jews of the Old Testament knew the books of Moses. <laughs> and they knew what Moses had written, what he did not write. And you couldn't have convinced them otherwise. So this canonization is going on. By the word, you know the word canonization, right? Can't cannon, not spelled with two ends, that would be a round thing that shoots big iron balls out the end. Not, not that cannon, but a cannon canon is the word is a straight edge, a line. Uh, to you and me, um, a ruler or a yardstick is a cannon. We take a straight edge. And we're going to see, I wonder if this thing's straight. And we put our straight edge up against it. Yeah, pretty straight. So canonization was the way they determined which were the straight books, which were the inspired books. Here's the standard. And whatever doesn't match doesn't belong here. And so if it's not written by an apostle, if it's not, if it, if it contradicts all other inspired writings, uh, if it's done in a in a way that no one knows, or from somebody that no one knows, then it was rejected. Okay. So this canonization process. Now, by the way, real quickly, I'm running out of time. I can see um, some. I think I think it was uh, Charles Ryrie put put it into three categories. There was the self authentication period, where, as I described, the the people in the times of the Bible knew themselves, self-authentication. They knew that these were books inspired. They knew that those were not. Then there was the debating authentication. In the next century or two, There was a lot of debating going on in those early church fathers about the apocryphal books and the pseudepigraphal books and all of those who claim, and by the way, they're all brought back up today, like the Gospel of Thomas, as if we never knew it before. You know, Dan Brown and his uh You know writings uh you know he brings them back up saying oh here 's the Gospel of Thomas. What a big uh uh you know secret it was that the church never wanted us to know that there's a fifth gospel, the Gospel of thomas we they knew that in the first century or they knew it when it was written, and they 've dealt with it forever to bring it back up as if it was never been dealt with is just old news. Then there was the final authentication, actually at the Council of Carthage. In 397 AD, it was settled. By 397, the church has said these are the 66 books and none others, and it's never been changed since then. Now, the Catholic Church can come along and say, well, we do believe that there are some other books that go in there, the Apocrypha, and they tried to insert them. Some other Protestant groups would include those books, but never claimed to be inspired. For example, the King James Version had the Apocrypha in it until, I think, the early 1800s was the first time the King James was printed without the Apocrypha. I have old King James versions myself with the Apocrypha in it. But they never believed they were inspired. To them, it was kind of like you having a Schofield study Bible or a Ryrie study Bible or something. Here's the text, and here are the study notes. And that's how they treated them. But the Catholic Church, they tried to say that these were inspired books, and we just have disagreed all along with that. All right? Now, uh, preservation is that process then that God preserved this word for us. And we have taken the position here that, that what was inspired were the original writings and no version today, the King James Version, the New King James or any other, is equal to the originals, that these are still translations. So throughout the centuries, Uh, these translations have been made primarily in other languages, right? The one that has been done the most, translated more than any other Bible into another language, by far used by any more people than any others is what? (laughs) Is the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic Bible. (laughs) Because the Latin Vulgate started in the 4th century AD and is still going today. They still have their Latin Bible, and if you're going to just count heads, you'd have to say there's more Latin Bibles out there, more Catholic Bibles than any other Bible in the last 2,000 years. Was that the was that then a good translation? Well, there's some parts of it that are good, but the Protestants never liked it for a number of reasons. They included the Apocrypha and, and Latin, you know, uh, only the priests knew it and so forth. So, Then it began to be translated into other languages, and those other languages were circulating all around. Our English Bible began with Wycliffe in the 1300s, and he only did part of it. And so finally, it wasn't until the 1300s that we had a translation in English. And then as the Church of England became established, there were many more that we have all the way up to 1611 when King James himself was king, and they, they named one after him. The Geneva Bible were, were by the, the people who were persecuted by the church, especially under Bloody Mary, Bloody, uh, Mary Tudor. They had to leave the country. They translated their own New Testament, called it the Geneva Bible, brought it back to England. When the pilgrims left in 1620, they made a rule that the only Bible you can have on board this boat is the Geneva Bible, from Geneva, they did not want a Bible with the king of England's name on it because he was running them out of the country. (laughs) And so interesting about our English Bible. But uh, the fact is, no matter the circumstances, a translation can be good or not so good. It It can even be done by people that aren't so good, and they can do a good translation. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Catholic Bibles are good Bibles. our our difference with them is not always their translation of it. It's their interpretation of it, right? You can take a Catholic Bible and lead somebody to the Lord. I mean, you can take a Catholic Bible and read it and be blessed, but done by people who didn't even know Christ as Savior, if they're good scholars. So uh, throughout there there are some good, there are very good ones. The King James Version is a very good translation. I love it. I still use it because I like old English stuff, <laughs> you know, and and I, I like the way it is. I like the the poetical value to it and the historical value to it. The New King James Version is a very good, uh, read, more readable version of the same thing. And then there are others today, New American Standard. The NIV is still a pretty good version. The ESV is a newer one and a very good one. So, As good men do a good job of translating, it's a good translation. And if that translation faithfully translates for us the meaning, you're not going to do it with an inspired word. A translator has to write down an English word for a Greek word. And that is not inspiration. If he claims it's inspiration, it's heresy. But he writes it down, and if... If it's a good word that translates that that Hebrew or Greek word, then it's a good translation. And we can say this is the word of God because it is giving you the meaning of the original writings. Understand? So that's kind of where we draw the line. It has to be a faithful translation. It has to faithfully give you the meaning of what the original writer was writing. But we don't quibble over... uh, you know, that it has to be this version or that if they're faithful. And in some places, the King James Version, uh, there are a couple words we quibble over, you know. Some of them are just outdated, and if they're outdated words, sometimes we may not always get the meaning we need from it. The, uh, you know, the NIV uh, is a good translation, actually very good on the deity of Christ, but it's a dynamic equivalent is what they say. They kind of say, well, here's the way they would say it in the first century. How would we say it in the 20th century? Because this was made back in the 60s. How would we we say it in the 20th century? We'd say it like this. And they sometimes put it down like that. I don't like that part of it. Because then, rather than just telling us the words, they're giving us uh, an interpretation, really. Okay? But when the but when Paul says in Romans 6 and other places in Romans, God forbid, should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Well, in the original language it was, may it not be. But can't you just see a, a, a 16th century Elizabethan judge saying, God forbid, <laughs> you know, God forbid. Of course you can. It's a dynamic equivalent you know, of what they would have said in the 16th century. So, uh, that's how God preserved it. And so, because God superintended that and watched over it, God did not preserve by miracle. He preserved by, uh, by his hand upon everything that happened. Uh, or you might say uh, that he preserved it with his providence. It's a providential preservation. Okay? Okay. So we have that. Then last two words, real quickly. Translation, well, I've actually talked about translation here. Uh, As it's translated well, it is a proper uh, expression of the word of God or not. Illumination in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. He doesn't have the spirit of God. He can't read the word of God and understand it but when you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he lives within you. He wrote the book. It's his inspired book, and he lives in you, and John says, if if that unction is inside you, you don't even need another man to teach you these things. The Holy Spirit is teaching you these things. Okay, illumination. All right, so we have to stop there. We're over time. So, uh, we couldn't crowd it all in in 45 minutes, but I hope it was all review to you. I hope this is just a kind of a refresher course to you of uh, a lot of detailed work uh, over the last 2,000 years that have gone into giving us uh, the Bibles that we have in our hands, and praise God for it all, really. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, lesson that we've had and thinking again about your Word and, and what a wonderful thing you did for us and how you, through your providence, have preserved it to us. And so, Uh, bless it as we read it, bless it as we preach it, uh, as we proclaim it to a lost world. And I pray your Holy Spirit would be pleased with all of that and use it in a great way through us, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.